fact, huh? Funny Scott, I'm an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. I just can't tell you what an absolute pleasure it is to be here. I want to thank Tim for being a great host and you guys for being so wonderful. The hospitality here has just been, as usual, whenever I'm in the South, just extraordinary. And I love you guys. It's a great conference. I want to thank Janice and, and everybody else. Just thank you so, so much uh, for inviting me down to come hang out with you. I wish I could have come down and spent more time. Uh, but I wasn't able to, and I just, I love you guys, and I love being here. And if you're new, I'd like to welcome you to AA and, uh, and tell you that I'm having a great life today. And if you're new, I'm, I'm sure that just thrills the hell out of you. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure you're overjoyed for me. Uh, uh, and I, <laughs> I, I know that because uh, I was so happy for the people having a good time when I got here. I, I, just, I, I was just thrilled to death for them, and I would... Uh, <laughs> I'd sit in my seat and listen to them talk about the new family, the new car, and the house, you know, and I'd think to myself, I'd think, uh, you know, maybe you'll go home tonight and, uh, and maybe your house will blow up. <laughs> maybe you'll blow up, and then we'll see how spiritual you are next week. So if you don't like to welcome me to AA, if you're a drug addict, I'd like to welcome you to AA, like John was talking last night. If you're a dope fiend, which is somehow worse than any of us, I'd like to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I uh, just suggest you catch alcoholism. Catch alcoholism, catch it. If you don't have it, catch it, because if you don't catch it, you could die from it. And uh, <laughs> this buddy of mine, Charlie and I, we, when we find, hear somebody uh, identify in a new and unique way we call each other because we get a big kick out of He called me last year. He said, I heard a guy identify as a me at a meeting as a crack monster. Ooh, that scary crack monster. Ooh. I wonder if they have a Halloween costume for crack monster. <laughs> you see, we have a book about alcoholism written by alcoholics. We don't have a book about crack monsters, about if you're the big foot of dope addicts, if you're like a... A dope juggernaut, you know. Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. Catch alcoholism. We'd love to give it to you. <laughs> My sponsor's fond of saying that the infection takes place at the meetings. It seems to enter through the ear. And uh, then it infects the person. They start infecting everybody around them. So stick around, stick around long enough to get a diagnosis. Uh, I was not an alcoholic when I came to AA. Uh, not. Absolutely not. Uh, first of all, I'm Jewish and Jews don't drink. Uh, because it might dull the pain. <laughs> yeah, you don't want that to happen. You don't want to squander any agony opportunity that presents itself. I didn't know it was just another yid on the skids, you know. Uh, anyway, it's a funny thing. My first couple of weeks in AA, so many people saved my life. So many people saved my life. And one of the guys that saved my life, and I'll, I'll never forget it, happened. I was a couple of days sober. I was at a meeting. I was still quick, you know, quick. And, uh, you know, in every part of your face is moving in a different direction, you know. You, you look like you just walked out of the GM wind tunnel, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I, this guy raised his hand. He identified, he said, I'm an ex-Catholic, which means I don't believe in God, and therefore I'm positive God is going to get my ass for feeling that way. <laughs> and I went and sat near him. I said, all right, we're in a ball game now, baby. I really got that. I really, really got that. Uh, another reason I did not have alcoholism, was not an alcoholic when I came to AA, was I had been in psychotherapy for 18 years by the time I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was going to be dead, but I was going to understand it. <laughs> and, uh, 
<laughs> and uh, <laughs> I'm not putting therapy down. Therapy is great stuff. It says on page 133 of our book, if you need a doctor, go get one. I got no beef with therapy. For me, it's an outside interest. My colossal blunder is I was trying to treat my alcoholism with psychotherapy. Oh, man, man, oh, man. I was showing up at a gunfight with a knife once a week like clockwork and getting these colossal ass whoopings. Just getting these colossal ass whoopings but doing good work in therapy. I was going to be like dead with no Oedipal conflict, but really, really dead. And uh, the third reason that I was not an alcoholic when I came here is I was not an alcoholic. I was a dark, complicated artist. But I was not an alcoholic. So if you're not an alcoholic, I'll welcome you to AA and suggest that you stick around long enough and try to get infected. And uh, I was uh, brought up in the Bronx in New York City. Anybody from the Bronx? No one? No one? No one's here? Even here? Pardon? Are you here with the Witness Protection Program, Peg? Peg says, we're in Alabama, you yo-yo, for God's sake. Big Bronx enclave down in Hunt. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, my family was nuts. I mean, certifiable, throw a net over any gathering of them, nuts. And my wife never believed me about them until she met them. And uh, my mom threw an engagement party for us, and my aunt came and wore her wig backwards, and it had a bun on it. <laughs> I wish I was lying about this. I, uh, these are my people. This is my genetic pool. And uh, <laughs> if you got anything for free in my family, it meant it was stolen. And uh, I had an uncle who was a welder who used to get free bales of steel wool. And my aunt, <laughs> his wife, took a decorating course and filled all, and made throw pillows, and filled them all with the free steel wool. Now, after a while, that stuff works its way through on you. So, <laughs> when you were at their house, if you looked at the room, everybody was moving a little bit. You know, everybody, it was like a living, breathing, pulsing organism. The whole, the, the whole room. Nuts! Nuts! I had an uncle who was one of the top ten welterweights of the world during the 1930s. His name was Izzy Redman. He was concerned about anti-Semitism because he was fighting in Atlanta, Georgia, so he changed his name to Izzy Goldberg, so no one could know he was Jewish. And I really wish I was lying about this. Uh, and there was mental and physical abuse and chronic institutionalization and suicide attempts, and they were just bananas. And if you're new here, all I've got is good news for you. Because <laughs> my family did not have one single solitary thing to do with making me an alcoholic. Not one thing to do. And I'm not telling you they weren't nuts. They were nuts. I'm not telling you I didn't have to do a lot of stuff to like repair that situation. I have had to do a lot of stuff to take care of it. I'm telling you they didn't make me a drunk. You can't make a drunk. Because if they had made me an alcoholic, I could go to therapy, work out my family problems, and drink properly. If they really had been the cause, then I, then they can be the solution. And I'd go to therapy. I wouldn't have to go to uh, parties anymore and say, oh, no heroin for me, I'll have a Perrier. Right? I wouldn't have to say that. I could just be like the normal people. <sighs> but it doesn't matter how much therapy I, I take. It doesn't matter how much of that I do. And if you're new here, that might sound strange to you because you might have had a lot of really bad stuff happen to you. And I want to tell you if you're new, I am not telling you for one second it didn't happen to you. I'm not telling you for one second you haven't been hurt. I'm not telling you for one second 
that that didn't happen. What I'm telling you is they couldn't make me a drunk. And that was incredibly good news for me. Incredibly good news for me because I was with a bunch of people who had actually had another solution. And I had not had any solution. I, I, uh, I'm going to share uh, my story today. And I, uh, I, I don't want to uh, offend anybody here. I, my, uh, my story uh, involves a uh, discussion of drugs. And I try to, I don't try to, I discuss drugs because they're part of my story in relationship to my alcoholism. And, and so it, it, it's tough for some people, and I just want to tell you, I don't mean to uh, break any traditions or annoy anybody. I'm an alcoholic. I got alcoholism bad. It's getting worse every year, my, uh, my, my alcoholism. But you see, I tried to avoid catching alcoholism by using drugs. And in addition to psychotherapy, when I was a young man growing up in the Bronx, the other thing I did was I drank till I didn't want to be a drunk. I, I overcame my alcohol problem with marijuana. Uh, if, I'd like to welcome all the, all the pot smokers here today. You, uh, uh, you, you remember WOW, right? Wow. Wow. And right after WOW usually came... What? What? Wow, what, wow, what, wow, what, wow. Watching a pot smoker is like watching a dog try to run on a linoleum. There's a lot of activity, but no movement. But they're busy, busy, busy people. I uh, was victorious over marijuana with uh, pills. I, uh, I triumphed over pills with cocaine. Uh, cocaine is an excellent drug. It's particularly good for sex if you enjoy sex from the Neolithic period. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I conquered that gal darn cocaine with heroin. Heroin is a very dark, complicated, artistic drug. Then you cross a line and become a vomiting pig. It's just a little hop, skip, and a jump. And uh, then I drank so I didn't want to be a drunk. And I almost, uh, almost died from alcoholism. I didn't even have it. And um, growing up in the Bronx in this nutty family and doing all this crazy stuff and going to therapy. I really thought it was going to help me dodge this alcoholic dilemma I was in from Jump Street. You know, and I tried to get in with these these guys. These guys were cool, man. I was growing up in the Bronx. They were stealing cars every day and running them into each other, having demo derbies. Huh? <laughs> Fun. And uh, and I was being brought into this gang by this guy, George. There's a ring of guys around me. And, and he's, you know, bringing me in. This is my moment, you know. And they drink beer and they steal cars, you know. And, and uh, I want to succeed. I want to, you know, be with these guys, you know. And uh, and George says, uh, we only do Chevy Biscayne's and Fairlane's, you know, because uh, you, you knock out the fly window, you get in the car, and they had a, the ignition on the steering column. He says, it's got off, on, and lock. If it's on lock, shine it. Find another car. If it's on off, just take your house key, put it in ignition, turn it on, drive off. And I want to make my bones here, right? So I said, uh, what if it's on, on? He says, and someone's in the car, you moron. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I failed gang 101. <laughs> they wouldn't talk to me anymore. <laughs> and, uh, and then there were these guys who were just starting to wear bell bottoms, you know. And I went, so I was thrown out of one group of rocket scientists, and I went to the other guys who were too loaded to even know that I was becoming part of their group, you know. So I went over there, and uh, at that time, if you even, like, wore bell bottoms like on a city bus, people moved away from you. That's cool. People move away from you. Wow, that's where I want to be. <laughs> So I hung out with these guys, and, and I got into this alcoholic dilemma, this, this spiral of therapy and drugs and alcohol from Jump Street. I was asked to leave a bunch of educational institutions, and, uh, uh, and then 
I sold dope to a cop, which wasn't fair. He wasn't wearing a uniform, no <laughs> warning at all, you know. And I, I, uh, all this really terrible stuff started happening to me. And um, uh, my dad thought he was a real loser. And I, I absolutely agreed with him. I, I, uh, I thought he was a chump. And uh, my father never made more than $10,000 a year. My brother and I never went to school with ripped clothing, and we never missed a meal. My last year out there, I made $80,000. My children went to school with ripped clothing all the time, and they missed meals all the time. Now, how can you do that? How can you put those two pictures of those two men down next to each other, and how can I come up with my father being a loser? How, how can you do that? Well, once a certain kind of thinking becomes established in someone who has alcoholic tendencies, anything is possible. Anything. And um, I set some lofty goals for myself because I didn't want to be a loser like my old man, make money and bring it home. And uh, <laughs> by, the time, by the time I got to AA, I had reached or surpassed them all. By the time I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I had had a book on the bestseller list. I had acted in a Broadway play. I had directed a television show and a film. Uh, I had had my own theater in New York. I had done all of these things a time. I, I never got to do any of them more than once because when I'd leave, they'd, they'd move the business so I couldn't find it again. And, uh, and, and I didn't really realize why until I took the alcoholic test. Now, if you're new here, we got a test. Other diseases, they got blood tests and x-rays and stuff. We, we have a test. It's called an inventory. And if you do it, you'll pass. It's a pass-pass situation. Right? And, and if you do it, if you write down the whole thing, the whole thing, and if you read the whole thing, I'm resentful at them, I'm resentful at me for resenting them. Resentful at them for watching me resent them. Right? And I've had sex with all of them. Right? <laughs> and I'm scared of all of them. Right? Well, what does this have to do with alcoholism if you're new? It is alcoholism. It is the soul sickness that will keep you in the loop of spree and remorse until you're dealt out, man. Until your account is at zero and you're hollow and insane and alone and eaten up on the inside by this cancer of the soul and that you make a terrible, hollow, awful sound when you get hit. That's what it is. It's that element that makes it impossible for my doctor to help me. It's that element that makes it impossible for that psychiatrist to help me out of this alcoholic dilemma. You know, I'm sorry, but you've got a disease. you got a disease that the text of which, recovery from which, actually has the sentence we absolutely insist on enjoying life. Not contained in any book about malaria, by the way. There's, there, there, there's no book about malaria says, oh, malaria's a hoot. You'll love malaria. It's fabulous. You'll meet other people with malaria. It's great. Then you'll meet people who just caught malaria. It doesn't get any better than that. I was 21 years old. My father uh, had a massive stroke, and I was taken to the hospital. And what had happened before I got picked up to go to this, the hospital is I had shot some dope. And uh, not because I knew my dad was sick, because I was awake, you know. And uh, I went to the hospital. I couldn't be there for my father or my brother or my mother. And uh, I collapsed as a son and a man and a brother. I, I couldn't be there for them. I, I couldn't. The sound of the heart machine couldn't even get through. You know, the curtain was down. And I just felt like a pig, like an animal. I never, ever had experienced such horrifying guilt. Um, there's probably a couple of times when someone ought to be there for their old man. That was the night, and I couldn't answer the bell. And my father was lost to me. I couldn't think about him. I couldn't talk about him. I couldn't look at pictures of him. Um, if you knew, I'm sure you won't identify with this, but every time the memory of him came up, I just would cringe. I would just cringe. It would be like just getting blindsided by a brick. I had a bunch of those things, but that was the biggest. That was the worst because he was gone. And when you're alone in this world and you don't have a God, 
There's no route back from that. There's no road back from that at all. And I knew what the problem was that night, and I knew how to solve it. The problem was simply those needles and that heroin. And I knew how to solve it. I swore I'd never do it again. And I did. I didn't do it again, not for 13 years. And as long as I didn't do that, everything else was okay. I was acting in a Broadway play shortly after this, playing a greaser in this Broadway show. You know, I had my cigarettes tucked into my shirt, you know, all slicked back, beating people up, kicking butt and taking names, you know, on stage. Couldn't do that in real life, so, I, you know. <laughs> and this new usherette walked into the theater with long brown hair. And I didn't, I just took one look at this woman. I didn't say a word to her. I took one look at her. I walked back into the dressing room, stood up on a chair, and announced to the male members of the cast, if anyone talks to the new usherette with long brown hair, I will break all the bones in your hands and feet. <laughs> and she took one look at me and read in my bio in the, in the program that I was a filmmaker and came in the next day with a big book that said, Orson Welles on its side, have a way to strike up a conversation with her and uh, I just kissed her goodbye yesterday morning we've been married for 23 years <laughs> and we I am telling you I I knew I was going to marry this woman and have children with her I knew it and uh, and after a while she came to believe and uh, uh, <laughs> and we <laughs> I was acting on Broadway. We were young. We were in our early 20s. We were living in New York City, man. It doesn't get any better than that. We were dead in our tracks. We were a couple of dogs trying to run on linoleum. We were going nowhere fast. We had alcoholism. We didn't even know we had it. And she was exotic to me, too. She was from, she was from Detroit. And, uh, and, uh, and I'm telling you, I had never been out of the Bronx. I'd been out of the Bronx once my whole life, you know? So she, I thought there were palm trees in Detroit. I mean, I, 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 I really been nowhere. Uh, I just adored her. I just thought she was the cutest thing in the whole world. And I still do. I really still think she's the cutest thing in the whole world. After all the sickness and after things got terribly, terribly ugly. But before that, we had some great times. Just great times. One of the most, for me, most misunderstood, for me, and disabused sections of our book is when it says I wouldn't trade my worst, when people say I wouldn't trade my worst day in here than out there. I said, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> Jeez, let's see. A pound of cocaine in an all-female jazz band or a panel at a recovery home. <laughs> what am I going to do? <laughs> For me, that story, and I love that story, uh, at, at the end, near the end of, uh, of that chapter, the guy, what the guy is saying to me is not that my worst day here is better than uh, my best day out there, that, despite, that I would not trade this way of life. I would not trade this way of life, no matter if it's bad out here and it was good out there, for anything. And for me, what he's saying is I will not... I will not settle for a nickel when I could, today when I could have a quarter tomorrow. I will not trade this way of life. And I've seen it thousands and thousands and thousands of times in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have seen people go through life and not drink. I have seen people go through death and divorce and misery and famine and earthquake and fire and not drink because they will not trade this way of life. They get the whole picture. They get the whole picture. They won't trade this way of life for that terrible hamster wheel. And um, so Nancy and I, uh, we got sick. Boy, did we get sick together. She got terribly sick from prolonged exposure to me. And uh, uh, one day I came home, we had these 32-ounce tumblers. Uh, 
iced tea tumblers in the house. I came home, I popped the cork, a, a bottle of wine, I emptied the entire bottle of wine into this glass. And I turn around and I'm getting the pre-Alanon rat face. You know, <laughs> it helps if you have hemorrhoids to make the thing. I said, what? She said, what are you doing? And I looked at her completely seriously and I said, I'm having a glass of wine. <laughs> Can a man have a glass of wine in his own home? We got so sick that at one point a guy lent us his car and we sold his car. I will never forget this guy's voice on the phone as long as I live. <laughs> you sold my car? I That's like house-sitting for someone and they come home and you're in escrow. And we are paying it. You know? The alcoholic life becomes the only normal one. It was the end of the month. We didn't have money for the rent. Big duh there, right? And I looked into my wife's eyes and I said, Sweetheart, I am so sick of acting like an immature punk kid. Let's stand on our own two feet. Let's not borrow money. Let's sell the car. And she looked at me and said, Let's do. With tears in her eyes. Now, I want to tell you, you know this as well as I do. I'm not sure because I don't remember. But let's sell the car was either, either I just, boom, I came up with it, boom, or that was the product of two weeks in the rat maze. You know what I mean? Either I ground that thing to shreds, either I worked on that thing every waking moment for a couple of weeks and came up with it, or boom, it was just an intuitive thought or an inspiration. I just boom, came up with it. I'm not sure which, it doesn't matter. It's that gal darn alcoholic thinking. Now, if you're new here, you'll hear about alcoholic thinking. It's the source of a lot of mirth at Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. It's fabulous stuff. If you have a weird, weird physical reaction to alcohol, only a certain uh, class of people of allergic types have it. Normal people don't have it. And it's coupled with this thinking. I love reasons to drink. I just love them. They're my favorite things in the world. I collect them. And uh, I, I have a friend named Larry, and the first time he ever read our book, when he read the first page of ch uh, fourth chapter, there's a, a line there that basically says, facing an alcoholic death or a spiritual life is not always an easy decision to make. <laughs> and the first time he ever read that, he said to himself, well, how bad an alcoholic death are we talking about? <laughs> a normal reaction to that. It's not. My, my favorite reason to drink in the last years, I was sponsoring this guy for like 10 minutes and uh, he, uh, he was a, a male prostitute, lived with his wife, he was a male prostitute and he had a gay lover. And he called me to tell me that he drank. And I said, oh, why? I have an inquiring mind. I want to know. And he said, uh, I caught my wife cheating on me. <laughs> you, you can't write that. You can't make that up. That's either the product of an intuitive thought or an inspiration, or he sat at the desk every night for weeks to come up with that sucker. That's gorgeous. That is really a thing of beauty. Oh, man. Um... <laughs> So Nancy and I became terribly sick, and uh, this is what it wound up. This is what where we wound up in the Redmond home. This was a good day in the Redmond home. I went to. This was success in our house where we wound up. Uh, I went to the doctor. He said, "You have high blood pressure, Mr. Redmond. You're going to have to lose some weight." And I said, "I would like to do that, but I, I drink alcohol and smoke marijuana before I go to bed every night, so I'm not going to be able to do that." And he said to me. <laughs> 
<laughs> he said to me, why don't I prescribe some medication for you? And I said, what a country. So he prescribes for me chloral hydrate. Now, chloral hydrate, if you... You see, you don't get that reaction at the Lions Club. I said chloral hydrate, some people's eyes glazed over, a little spittle came out of their mouth. Chloral hydrate. Um, if you want, well, it's a Mickey. It's a knockout drop. If you ever watch those films from the theories where an unruly sailor, they slip a white powder in his beverage and he drinks it and falls back like a potted palm, that's, that's chloral hydrate. And I love these pills. I love them. I love my knockout drops. And I'm taking handfuls of them. Nancy comes home. I'm taking handfuls of knockout drops and I'm slamming my arms into the wall to keep myself awake to, to enjoy my Mickey. <laughs> you don't want to waste a good knockout drop by actually being knocked out. So I'm standing in the hall whacking myself until I just take too much and just keel over and no amount of impact's going to keep me awake. Boom, I fall down. Now I'm becoming incontinent. I can't wake up in the middle. I have to go to the bathroom. I'm wet in the bed like all the other 30-year-old men in America. <laughs> One night I got it together and I got up in the middle of the night and wet the wall. And I'm, t I'm telling you, the next morning everyone was excited. He wet the wall. He's moving towards the bathroom. It's progress, not perfection. It's a good morning and I've been home. So Wheaties morning. He dead wet the wall. You know, you hear sometimes the road gets narrower, man. My life has never gotten narrower at Alcoholics Anonymous. It was pretty damn narrow that morning. Good morning, dead, wet the wall. That's a narrow road. <laughs> when our older son Michael was born, we were surrounded by friends and family. There was a ton of phone calls, lots of flowers, lots of people visiting at the hospital. He was really welcomed into the world. <clears throat> and two years and nine months later, when our younger son Jesse was born, there were no phone calls, no flowers. We had been completely isolated by the disease of alcoholism in just two years and nine months. And it wasn't because people didn't love us anymore. It just hurt too much to be around us. The ice had become so thick around our hearts, we had just repelled everybody. And it was a terrible, terrible cold and lonely place to be. And uh, Jesse had a little heart problem when he was born, and he was taken up to neonatal intensive care. And that night, I got a call from a doctor from the hospital. And... Uh, who I'd never met before, and she said, Mr. Redmond, your wife is in a lot of trouble. And you guys know that there's, you know, there's really no more wonderful place to be than the maternity ward of a hospital when things are okay. And there's no worse place to be when things aren't okay, when you have no God in your life, when you have no fellowship, when you really are alone. And she was all alone. And this doctor said, you really need to come down and help out. She's all alone in the room. The baby's up in an incubator. She's, in, she's really having some trouble. And I said to this doctor, I, I'd love to do that, but I, I can't find anybody to watch my two-year-old son. I can't come down. Which was the truth. I couldn't find anybody to, to watch Mike. And this doctor, who I had never met before, said to me something pretty remarkable that morning on the phone. She said, I'll tell you what. Why don't I give you my phone number? You call my house. My husband's there. You bring your son over to my house, and he'll watch your kids so you can come down here and be with your wife. What, what an extraordinarily... You know, generous, wonderful. I mean, I didn't know, and she was a doctor to boot. I mean, pretty remarkable. And I said, no. I had no way I could accept this woman's generosity. I had no way. And I think that part of it was, if I had said yes, I would have had to take a look at my life. 
If I had said yes, I would have had to say somehow, why aren't I dropping them off at a relative? Why? What has happened? How the hell did this happen? How did we wind up out on this iceberg? And it wasn't like I was doing Micah a favor, my, my older son. Now he was trapped in the house with this insane man who was filled with self-loathing, just hating life, racked with guilt, suffering. I would've, he would have done better if I had taken him down to the hospital and left him alone in the waiting room with a coloring book. Maybe he would have met some kind people. That's where we wound up by the time we got to AA. And um, But I was okay as long as I didn't put that needle in my arm. And my life just kept running out between my fingers like a handful of water over and over and over again. When Micah was five years old, he came to me and he said, Dad, is there anything such as God? And I looked into the eyes of my perfect five-year-old baby boy and I said, No, son, there isn't. Now, what I thought I was doing was I thought I was giving him the real existential party line. What I thought I was doing was I thought I was saving him some skin so he wouldn't have to be played like one of those saps and suckers out there. That's what I thought I was doing, that I was giving him the brave way out. Okay, what I was doing was something completely opposite. And if you're new here, please read the fourth chapter of our book because it speaks to this so much more eloquently than I'll ever be able to speak to it. But it says basically that you're not doing that. You're actually giving him the coward's way out. You're actually doing something completely opposite of what you think you're doing. You're actually sharing with him the weakest, mushiest, most transparent, flimsy thinking of all. Not this, this solid statement. But forget about that for a minute. Forget about the fact that I was doing something opposite to what I think, thought I was doing. And forget the fact that I was lying to him. Worse than that. To me, much worse than that. And I know this now that I'm a sober man. Is what I was really saying to my son. In essence to this five-year-old boy was I was saying, sweetheart, you know when it's dark in your room and you're really scared and you can't go to sleep? Tough, because that's all there is. That's really what I was saying to him, which I think is far worse than any of the other stuff. I think that's a kind of child abuse that I think you get locked up for that kind of behavior. And that's where we wound up by the time we came to Alcoholics Anonymous on April 22nd, 1985. What happened to me on April 20th, 1985, is I, I, uh, I crossed the line. I swore I would never cross again. I put a needle in my arm. The money was gone. The careers were gone. Our, we were gone. The kids were nuts. Micah was making involuntary clicking noises with his throat that he couldn't stop making. He was reading and writing years below his grade level. His small motor skills were screwed up, and he tested in excess of 168 IQ. He was functionally retarded because he was distracted from being scared all the time. If you get in between me and the drink and you're my kid, you're going to disappear. You're either going to vanish or you're going to become something less than human because I'm going to answer the call. How much vanishing can a baby bear before they finally believe what they're being taught, which is that they don't exist? And they became transparent. My kids became transparent. They just started to disappear. And they either became pointlessly aggressive en route to a goal they could never achieve because things never worked out, never worked out the way they were supposed to, or they'd just throw in the towel over and over and over again. And, um, <clears throat> and I put a needle in my arm again because it was there. And I called my therapist of record that morning, my first Jungian therapist, and uh, I told him what I had done, and he said to me that morning, there's absolutely nothing that can be done for you. And I said, what? <laughs> he said, I can't help you. There's nothing I can do for you. The only thing I can suggest is you attend a meeting of Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, or we have you institutionalized. 
Now, on most other days, I would have gladly gone to the institution. I, I, there wouldn't have been, it would have been a no-brainer, right? I would have been with my people, colorful and adventurous people. Uh, I mean, in the last few years, I got excited when they told me I needed dental surgery. Um, that's an uninterrupted source of narcotics for a period of time. Normal people don't get excited about dental surgery. I just want to tell you that. Normal people don't go, ooh, dental surgery. Why I went to that AA meeting, I don't know, but I went to one. And I came home and I started pouring myself a glass of wine and my wife said, like, what are you doing? I said, sweetheart, they're civilized people. You don't stop drinking completely. You have a, a glass of wine. They're not crazy. You just don't get drunk. And uh, then I, I went to another meeting and, uh, and uh, I had sent some money to Texas uh, uh, for some drugs that were already paid for, so it was incumbent upon me to take them uh, when they arrived. And, uh, and then the next day at 7 a.m., I woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning. I put on my best clothes, and I went to go report to the ANA. And I walked into this uh, 7 a.m. meeting, and I took one look around. And if you're anything like me and you're new, you're looking around this room today, just like I did that morning, and you're saying to yourself, Alcoholics Anonymous. How did I wind up in Alcoholics Anonymous? How lame is this? This is beyond lame. This is beyond church, beyond synagogue. This is some plateau of lameness I never even imagined was available to me. Alcoholics Anonymous. Welcome. Welcome. And I hated everything about AA. Everything was a miracle, miracle, miracle. I'm a miracle, you're a miracle. The copy's a miracle, the furniture's a miracle. America. And if you're new, you are now privy to an unending unsolicited reservoir of information and advice. They're going to get right up in your face and talk that endless, unsolicited AA crap to you. You know, it's usually a guy with one tooth with a cavity in it, right? <laughs> Do I want what you've got? No! but thanks for spitting on me. I really appreciate it. I couldn't believe it. There I am, like my friend Cliff says, finally, with, with Clem and Martha. You know, I'm dead. Give me a rug to hook. We're dead, you know. Oh, I hated AA. Oh, God, I hated it. And I don't know why I stayed. The only reason I can imagine that I stayed in Alcoholics Anonymous is that I was out of plans. And if you are new here, I pray for you that you are out of plans. If you have a plan, it's probably a butte. <laughs> don't use your plan. Grab one of us after the meeting and tell us your plan. We want to know the plan. <laughs> now, that's the book I've always wanted to see, is the collection of newcomer plans. <laughs> right? My favorite, and it is the single most used newcomer plan I've seen over the years, is the one more dope deal to set myself up financially for sobriety plan. <laughs> right? It's out there. It's going to wind up on the soft literature rack. I absolutely uh, guarantee <laughs> If you're new here, I want to congratulate you for stumbling into a good AA meeting. And I know this is a good AA meeting, and I know it's a good conference. Because all I've heard so far is people talk about alcoholism. All I've seen is prominently displayed AA literature. And uh, it's just great.
It's just great. Because sometimes I can go to an AA meeting and not even hear a passing reference made to God, the big book, or the steps, and it confuses the living heck out of me. If I go to a meeting and all I hear about is issues and boundaries. <laughs> now, I'm not putting issues and boundaries down. They're all good. They're fine. But you see, you've got to not drink to have one. <laughs> right? you got to not drink. got to not drink to have an issue or a boundary. The not drinking part's a moose. If it was not for the not drinking part, we would be a much bigger organization. Right? <laughs> Right? Because a lot of people want to do it, but it's that goddamn not drinking part. You know? if, you, if you don't drink, you have an issue and a boundary. If you're new and you're wondering when you're going to get in touch with your feelings, stay sober, they'll get in touch with you. Janice and I were talking at breakfast, we were talking about I have a guy I sponsor. And I said to he, his family's passed away and people, you know, calamity all around. I said, you don't have an abandonment issue. You have abandonment reality. <laughs> people just evaporate on this guy. Anyway, I, uh, if you're new, I want to urge you to read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. If possible, read it with some people who are familiar with it. And what will happen is it will clear up the meetings for you. It cleared them up for me. I'll tell you that right now. I used to find a lot of them very confusing. And when I read that big book with some people who were familiar with it, the meetings started really making sense to me. I started listening to people talk and saying, oh, he's talking about Alcoholics Anonymous. He's not talking about Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know what he's talking about. But I judge no man. Because I'm just too damn spiritually developed. That's why. Could you take that off the tape? <laughs> so I guess I was out of plans. I hung around AA for six months and enjoyed the gift of step none. <laughs> you know the gift of step none. Nothing! I was doing nothing and receiving nothing. And... Uh, my friend Cliff says there's two kinds of newcomers in AA, surrendered newcomers who are an absolute pleasure and an honor to be around, and not surrendered newcomers who are an incredible pain in the butt. Uh, not to me, but to themselves. And Because uh, I seem to stay sober through their difficulties uh, no matter what. But my heart, my heart goes out to them, and, send, and a lot of times those non-surrendered people become surrendered people. But my heart does go out to them. What a horrible thing to have untreated alcoholism. To have to not be treating your alcoholism with a drink, because drinking works, man. It kills your butt, but it works. I know how to treat alcoholism. I know how to get the hardware out and do it right, you know. But if you're not doing that and you're not using the program of action outlined in our book, ooh, man. And I had seen the drill hundreds and hundreds of times in just the six months I had been here. I saw people come in, do the work and change, or people not come in, not do the work, not change, get sick, get sicker, get to the podium, share their gift with us. <laughs> And share their can right out the door. Hundreds and hundreds of times. Or stay here and become columns of human sewage and sexual predators. Although, uh, I judge no man. I guess. <laughs> so I knew I was going to drink. I knew it. I had seen it hundreds and hundreds of times. And my wife had reached out to the Allen on family groups and had started to pursue her miracle. And my sons had just become a little less frightened. Right before I got sober, I reached for something at my dinner table. My arm came near my older son, and when my arm came near him, he went like this. 
and my heart fell out of me. I never even imagined that I would wind up there in my life. And it wasn't planned. I mean, I saw it was a reaction in him. And, uh, and because I just saw the mirror of your love in my kids' faces a little bit, because I saw it in my wife's eyes a little bit, I asked a guy to sponsor me. And I had done, I did what I had rarely done in my life. I went to a good guy for something he had. And, and I mostly didn't do that. I'd go to drowning people and ask for swimming lessons, you know. And when all they'd say is glub, 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 I'd get pissed off at him, you know. So, but I went to a good guy, uh, for something he had. And, and, uh, he made sure I'd done some reading from the big book of AA. And he invited me to his apartment and he spent hours and hours with me for fun and for free. And I couldn't figure out why he was doing it. I really couldn't. And he read chapter five to me. And on the way through, he took me through the first two steps. And we reached step three. We got on our knees. We said a little prayer together. And then he finished chapter five and he went back and he gave me instructions on how to do a fourth step from the big book of AA. And I will tell you, I didn't have a burning bush experience that day, but I will tell you, I for sure stopped feeling like I was stealing someone's seat here. I had been going to step studies and book studies and I didn't have anything to talk about because I had done nothing. Anytime I'm at a step study and anyone sharing begins with the following sentence. Well, I haven't actually worked this step, but I always say, but what are you going to be talking about? That's like talking to a bunch of auto mechanics and saying, I've never actually repaired a car, but I'd like to talk to you about it. it it's mind-boggling to me, but again, I, I judge no man. And, uh, <laughs> well, I had some stuff to start talking about because I was doing something, you know? They, weren't, they still weren't real thrilled to hear me, but... I, but uh, I, I, I was involved. I, I was, uh, and, and I tell you, you know, some people, and, and then I sponsored too, some people say they mostly resented themselves. And I really believe them, that they mostly resented themselves more than they resented other people. Really not true for me. I hated myself, but nothing compared to how much I hated you. I hated you so much more than I hated me. I can't even tell you. I am, I'm, I am not a suicide person. I'm a homicide person. I vastly prefer your death to mine. I always have. You, you go first, you know, and I, I'm, uh, I want to apologize. I, I'm not knocking the suicide people. This is not, I'm not putting you all down. I, I just, that's where I go. You first, you know, so I had, <laughs> I had a lot of work to do. And uh, I did my inventory. I went back to my sponsor at nine months of sobriety. I read uh, my fifth step. I did step six and seven for the first time, which have sort of become my working template for my relationship with God. And it came time to do my eight-step list. Now, I, I try to share this anytime I talk. Um, it's simply the best reading of step eight I've ever heard in my life. And it happened at my old home group uh, years and years ago. To, and a guy did this I'd never seen him before that night and I've never seen him since his name was Nino he had a heavy New York accent he was there at a hospital group he had hospital plastic on and he had never read chapter 5 before in his life never seen it before and he was reading it for the first time in front of this men's group and he got up to step 8 and he read made a list of all those we had hand and became willing to make amends to them all Jesus Christ <laughs> And he looked out into the room as if to say, Have you seen this? Do you know what's in here, man? It was so beautiful. It was the most perfect reading I've ever heard. Because it was the only thing I saw when I saw the steps. I didn't see anything else. Not those people, not that money. No, 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 no. I would not have taken that much money if I knew how to give it back. 
right? No way, no way. Not the car. I'll never forget that guy calling that guy to tell him I was paying him back whose car I had sold. He said, his voice was exactly the same. He said, you're paying me back? It's like he was frozen on the phone, you know, through all those years. If you're new, don't worry about it. It's eight steps from where you are anyway. And it's not eight that's the annoying one, really. It's uh, nine. <laughs> so we're up that eight-step list. My kids and my wife had to go down there, my dad, and I didn't know what the heck I was going to do about any of it. I really didn't. And I had a sponsor. And I don't know if he did this with all the many sponsors. I really don't. I just know he did it with me. He wouldn't tell me how to make the amends. I wanted him to because I didn't know what to do. What was I going to do? Sit down with my wife and say, gee, hun, sorry about this eight-year journey to Hades. <laughs> okay? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what I was going to do. He refused to tell me. I didn't know what I was going to do for my dad. I, and he just said, do your job. Maybe he just knew that that's what I had to do, that I had to get really busy. Do your job. Do your job in Alcoholics Anonymous and see what happens. So I started doing my job. I was lucky enough to be in contact with the old-timers at the uh, Old North Hollywood Group in, in California and hanging out with Alabama Carruthers and uh, Bruce Gleason and some really remarkable people with a lot of time. And they, they growed me up in AA. And the North Hollywood Group uh, on Radford Street was my home group for many years. And uh, my home group today, which is the Wednesday night Pass It On group, in Studio City is a, sort of an offshoot of that group. And I'm very proud to be part of it and very proud to come from that group of people. And um, I started doing my job. I started doing my job in AA. I had to start doing lame, 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 lame stuff. Lame, 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 lame. <laughs> Going to flag football games, coaching Little League. Lame, 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 lame. <laughs> first Little League game I go to, I, I, I'm there. My wife comes to the game, takes one look over at the first base stands and just falls down laughing. Because there's all the people in the first base stands. And there's me, alone in the sun, pissed off. Absolutely psychotic. I'm here. I'm doing my job. I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. Going up and down two hat sizes. You know, just nuts. And the kids were thrilled to see me. Mr. Redmond's going to blow up, man. Look at him. Look at him. I'm telling you. And it took a couple of years for the voices to diminish in volume and number for me to just go and sit with the people in the first base stance, to just be with the people, you know, at my sobriety station. And, uh, I did that for a couple of years, and uh, and after doing it for a couple of years, being at my sobriety station, my son Jesse received one of the greatest compliments I believe a human being can receive on this planet. He was intentionally walked. <laughs> it, it doesn't get a lot better than that, really. Now, if you're not a baseball fan, that means they're scared of you and they want to get to the weenie behind you. And... Uh, <laughs> And he didn't want to jump up and down and scream and yell and be lame, you know, you got to be cruel. So he just laid his bat down and he trotted up the first baseline. And on the way up the first baseline, he turned to me because I'm at my sobriety station and he just shot me just this much stuff, just a little stuff. You don't want to spoil the old man. Don't be lame. Don't just a little bit, you know, and went up on that first baseline. And uh, I could have missed the whole thing. I could have missed the whole thing. And I'm not telling you that Jesse got intentionally walked because I'm sober. I'm telling you I'm at my sobriety station because I'm sober. And I've been with enough men who have been drunk on their kids' birthdays again. And I tell them about the day my kid got walked. I know because I was there. And they're drunk on their kid's birthday again. And I have given my sons 
12 appropriate gifts on the day of their birthday for 12 years. You know, and on Halloween, last Halloween, I'd get, not on one of those years, if I'd given them the radioactive guilt day after gift, you know, the, the pot of potted palm, you know, the day after, the, that sick, insane gift that I wrote a hot check for to buy. This past Halloween, Halloween night, I'm driving, my kids haven't trick-or-treated in a while. They're 16 and 19. and uh, <laughs> They're doing other things. They're having their own private Halloween. <laughs> and uh, I'm driving in this AA for, uh, commitment Halloween night, and I got hit with this. And if you've been around here any appreciable amount of time and you're treating your alcoholism, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm driving through L.A., and I see all these kids scrambling around the streets with their little bags, doing their Halloween thing, and these grown-ups. And I got hit one more time with that incredible feeling of being connected to what was going on around me, being connected to that world and not driving through some alien landscape. And I know, I know why I felt that way. I felt that way because for 10 years, I put a few bucks aside and spent it on a little candy for Halloween to give to the kids. I made sure my kids had appropriate costumes. And did that for 10 years. So that muscle's strong. I've exercised that muscle. This is not some bizarre, woo-woo, strange, abstract idea. I practiced Halloween for 10 years. Why wouldn't I feel connected? Why wouldn't I feel part of it? Instead of even the Halloween commercials reminding me about what a bad guy I was. You know? It's just great. This way of life, this program of action, this program of action is just unbelievable. 18 years of psychotherapy couldn't even take the edge off the noise in my head. And I'm telling you, most days the noise is gone. You know. um, I heard a lot of things in AA that I wanted. I heard a bunch of things I didn't want. I heard a lot of things about alcoholism that I don't, that don't apply to me. That none of them are in the big book, but they apply to a lot of other people. You hear sometimes alcoholists don't like change. I, I just don't like change I don't like. <laughs> but I love change that I like. I've never heard, you know... An alcoholic get up and say, oh, I'm really depressed. I hit the lottery and I'm going out with twins. You know, I've never, I, I've just, I've never heard that. You know? <laughs> Terrible. Change is killing me. Uh, you hear sometimes alcoholics are perfectionists. I'm not a perfectionist. I like you to be a perfectionist when you're dealing with me. I'm a perfectionist about your perfectionism. But I'm not a perfectionist. I'm a slob. But I like to be surrounded by perfectionists. And then, of course, there's a lot of things that I have heard around AA uh, that have worked for me. I will tell you this. One thing that is very comforting to me is none of the things, for me, not one of the things that I've heard in AA that I do not relate to is in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Not one single one of them. And, man, I like that. Because it was written by 100 drunks, the big book, which is more than one. So I'm hearing the thing that I don't relate to from one, and then I got the thing that's been written by a hundred, and I, I like that. I like that a lot. It makes me feel real good and real safe. And I, um, in my first year of sobriety, I uh, fancied myself a show business big shot. I, I had a ghostwriting job for 20th Century Fox, and then, uh, at the end of that year, I um, um, was being considered to direct a situation comedy in L.A., which was a big job, paid a lot of dough. And uh, I was sponsoring some guys by this time. I was... Uh, you know, kind of becoming a spiritual behemoth. And uh, 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 I thought that if I got this job, it would benefit the men that I sponsor. Because they'd see me prospering, and it would be good for them. Why? 
And I didn't get the job, and I almost drank. And, uh, and I, I was humiliated. I mean, I, I really came close to drinking. I went to my sponsor. I told him what I had done, and he said, uh, I guess you have the show business God. I said, what? He said, well, what keeps you sober? I said, God. He said, well, God keeps you sober. You didn't get a show business job, and you almost drank. So I guess you have the show business God, and he has abandoned you utterly. <laughs> He said, I had to sit down and write a 10-step against myself for almost drinking and against the company for not giving me the job. And he said, you know, when you, when you do six and seven this time, you better have a talk with him about what you're going to have to do to stay sober. I mean, are you going to work six and seven or not? Are you really going to ask him to take this? And, you know, I mean, humbly ask him to remove these defects. Humbly isn't take him if you can, big guy. <laughs> humbly isn't take him, you rotten son of Humbly is... Pop, I'm done. Can you please help me? Can you please help me? I'll do anything. I'll push a peanut up Main Street with my nose. I won't just talk about it this time. I'll do it. <laughs> please. It says in the last sentence of chapter 4, when we drew close to him, he revealed himself to us. This is how I draw close to him. One of the ways I draw close to him. So, you know, I had heard when I came into AA, I had heard God getting people... Jobs, God getting people in relationships, God getting people parking spaces. Oh no, not the parking space God, not the parking space God. What if you don't get a space, you know? And if you have a parking space God and he gives you space, pass it on. No. Uh, so I did six and seven and I said, Pop, you got it, baby. Take show business too. I'm not willing, I'm not willing to suffer this way. You got it. I will do anything for a living. I'll do anything. That doesn't mean I have to stop writing. That doesn't mean I have to stop writing. I can still pursue my dream, but I'll do anything you want me to do for a living. I say, Pop, can I have my dream? He says, yeah, go right. I'll make you so free from jealousy and self-loathing and low self-esteem and people-pleasing that you'll be able to sit at the typewriter and write. Pursue your dream. I don't care what it is. To be a carpenter, to be a lawyer, to be a writer, to do anything you want. And I say, okay, thanks, Pop. Can I have a three-picture deal? He says, that's a personal problem. <laughs> that's your job. I'll let you have your dream. You're talking about business. That has nothing to do with me, babe. Go take some of the lunch. Get off my back. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't know the difference back then. I came to believe, I came to learn it through practice, through exercising that muscle. My not drinking muscle is real strong, much stronger than my drinking muscle. If you're new here, my personal opinion is I'm not as close to my next drink as you are. I'm not. My drink, not drinking muscle is much stronger than yours. It doesn't mean I, <laughs> I only get to do it one day at a time. I got to do all the work. I got to do all the stuff. You've heard from all the speakers, people with a lot of time, they do the stuff. They do all the stuff, they do it all the time. So I get no exemptions, but you're in a lot more trouble than I am. <laughs> Otherwise, what the hell am I doing up here? I mean, and I could say that anyway. But, uh, so I said, Pop, take show business. I'm willing to do anything for a living. I'll do anything you want me to do. And within three months, I was working as a cook on a catering truck. And I, I looked up to God, and I said, uh, I didn't mean this. I mean, we've had a grotesque misunderstanding. I did not mean this. Now, in Los Angeles, when they make a TV show or a movie, they hire a caterer, he travels around on a truck, follows him around, makes food for him, and makes a lot of dough. It's a great job. It's Teamster money. You're on a vehicle on a movie set. You make a lot of money. It's a great job. But I'm Scott Redman. 
So the first movie that I cater, the executive producer and star in the movie is a guy who I've worked with in the business before. So he sticks his head on the truck that morning and he says, can I have a burrito? Scott? <laughs> and I said, what's happening, man? <laughs> and he says, is this your truck? I said, no, but it's my spatula. <laughs> I got off work that day and I called my sponsor and I said, oh, we're getting the gift now, babe. Yeah. It's beautiful. He said, sounds like you've got a resentment. Oh. And I sit down and I write, I'm resentful Scott for working on a kitchen truck. It affects my self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relations, and sex. A five-bagger for sure. to take away? The burrito? The guy? The truck? What am I asking God to take away? I'm a... Resentment's no big deal. It's just the source of all spiritual illness. The great destroyer of all alcoholics. It'll cut you off from the sunlight of the spirit, drag your ass out, and kill you dead. But don't be alarmed. No big deal. <laughs> Relax. Work a step a year. It's okay. I'm going to die. Because I don't experience resentment as a dislike. I don't, re I don't dislike you. I re-sense something. I re-experience it and it snowballs until I experience a soul-crippling, heart-gobbling hatred that eclipses everything and everyone around me. Ugh, that's nauseating. <laughs> and it's true. I'm going to die. So I sit down and I write, I'm resentful at Scott working on the kitchen truck. What am I going to ask God to take away? Magic time. God's got a magic wand. He comes down and touches me. What poison in me? If God took it away, would I be free of this life-ending malady? I'm ashamed. I'm impatient. Things aren't moving along. I'm ungrateful. I'm working. I'm making money. I'm ungrateful. I'm a mind reader. I know what everyone's thinking on that set about me. About me. We need no psychic hotline. No, 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 no. Not us. Not us alcoholics. We are as a class. Thank you, Dion, but no thank you. As a class, the group of the greatest mind readers in the universe. You can tell when we're at work, you can see that vein pumping like a garden hose on our forehead. Man. And that's the list I had to go to my father with and say, Pop, please take this away. I'll do your work. Please do my work and help me out. And I got to, I got to work that 10-step. And man, I, I cooked for years and I... I wound up serving people who had been my assistant directors and my stage managers. I'd go back to my home group and tell these stories of humiliation. The guys would howl. They'd cry. Tears would stream down their face. As every fresh tale of humiliation would come in. I had a friend named Paul. He thought he had fallen from a height when he came in. And, you know, and, and I got to help some guys who thought they had fallen from a height when they came in AA. They hadn't reached what I consider the top rank in AA, which is child of God. And once you're one of God's kids, you can't, you have no place to fall. And Paul used to say this little prayer. He told me about it. He said, he said, Pop, please help me. I'm willing to do anything for a living. I'll do anything, but please don't let it be as bad as what you did to Scott. <laughs> I was so glad to be of help to him. And, uh, and I, uh, I cooked and I, I, I learned how to show up and give them a dime for their nickel and I did my job. And uh, after I'd been doing it two, three years, 
I was uh, becoming very, very spiritually developed at that point, and uh, I was contacted by a company named Kitchen Public Relations in New York, big PR company, and uh, for uh, I was being considered for a big comedy writing job, and uh, and by this time I really did think that it would really benefit the men that I sponsor if I got the job, because I had been through all this terrible stuff, you know, and the cooking, and and now they'd see me, right? <laughs> they'd see me succeed. What a message! <laughs> So I had to do this videotape for him. I sent it away, and uh, and I, I went mad before I even found out about the job. My brain blew up, and I went nuts. I mean, from the mind reading and not living it today, and just going crazy. And I wrote about it. I wrote it to my sponsor, and I really did let it go. A couple of weeks later, I get a call from Ketchum that I didn't get the job, and I was fine. And a little while after that, I get a call uh, to cater some commercials up in Lake Arrowhead in the mountains above L.A., so I get in the truck and I go up to cater these commercials and I grab the call sheet which gives you all the information about the commercial and I see that the commercials are for Ketchum Public Relations. I'm feeding them now. <laughs> and I look down at the end of the truck, there's a guy videotaping me. I said, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm ta videotaping the making of the commercial. He's taping my humiliation. <laughs> he's taping me. He's going to send me tape to New York. The guys in New York are going to look at the tape and go, is that Scott Redman with the meatloaf? Oh, the poor guy. So I get off work. I call my sponsor and I said, oh, we're getting the gift now. Oh. It's a miracle. It's a big miracle. <laughs> he said, uh, I guess God had enough uh, writers and he needed a few cooks today. <laughs> then he said, uh, you know, you told God you wanted to work for Ketchum and you forgot to tell him what you wanted to do. <laughs> oh, as long as he's having a good time, folks. Years later, I was back writing and directing TV shows. And I was at the Universal lot, and a uh, 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 grip. Grip is a guy on a movie set who does a lot of the setting up of the shots and moving stuff around. And this grip walked up to me on the uh, on the Universal lot. And he said, "Oh, you're that great caterer. You're such a great guy. You're such a great to so great to show see you every day. Your smiling face, which you know made me feel great." He said, "What are you doing on the lot, uh, Universal?" I said, "I'm I'm uh, directing the show on stage 46." He said. Did you go right from the catering to the director? <laughs> Did you? Our boys started getting, growing up in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I told you how scared and crippled up they were and sick. And uh, when I was uh, six years sober, well, I was a year sober, I was sponsoring a guy named Roland. And Roland used to call me every single night and he'd leave a message on my answering machine every single night. And every single night he'd leave a message that said, Scott, it's Roly. I'm sober. I love you. Good night. He'd hang up the phone. When I was six months, six years sober, five years later, my older son Micah came to me and he said, you know, Dad, when I was a little boy and you were a year sober, I couldn't fall asleep until I heard Roland's voice on the machine. And once I heard Roland's voice on the machine, I knew it was okay to go to bed. And uh, this is the kid I told was no God. I tried to rip God out of his life. 
and you guys just came and got him. You came and got him. You came over the answering machine. You came in the back door and you tucked him in at night. And I told him there was no God. I told him that when it was dark at night and he was all alone, tough. And um, I think some nights he'd just stay up till he passed out. But one thing he knew, he knew that Roland wouldn't keep calling if I was drinking. He knew it. He knew it. I'm sorry were the two most useless words in my vocabulary. What meant something was the action that I took, the men who I loved and who loved me, and the fact that he called. Micah tells me this when I'm six years sober. I don't know why he tells me. What I did know that was Roland at that point in his sobriety was positive. He had not helped anyone. He had done nothing. So he, Micah told me exactly when Roland needed it back. Exactly. Um... I was making lunch for my kids. I've been sober a couple of years. And I said to Micah, what, on your, what do you want on your hot dog? And he said, I want mustard, onions, and lettuce. And I said, lettuce? He said, oh, okay, I don't want lettuce. And he walked away. And he came back about 45 minutes later, and he looked at me directly in the eyes. And I'm not altering one syllable. He said, I will never again allow your opinion of what I want affect what I ask for. <laughs> So I asked him to sponsor me. <laughs> What's that? What the heck is that? Jesse broke his wrist in the playground. And he, he, he was a little boy. He got it in a growth plane. If you know about the way kids develop, it, they get hurt in the cartilage. Once it gets set, it can't be messed with because it's going to turn into bone. It's really a serious injury and it's got to stay set. They're brothers, so they're wailing away at each other, you know, right after he gets back from the hospital, you know. They're tumbling around. And I got Micah aside, and I got right up in his face because I had to let him know it wasn't okay. And I yelled at him, can't do this. Brothers hurt. He walks away, and he walks in his room, and he slams the door. Slams the door. <laughs> so I go to the door, and I open the door, and before I can go, he says, hold it. Hold it. I didn't tell you you were wrong out there. You were right. I didn't tell you you were wrong, but a big guy just got up in my face and screamed and yelled at me. I didn't tell you you were wrong. Don't tell me I can't be mad. <laughs> What's that? What the heck is that? That's Alcoholics Anonymous and the al Groups. That's someone standing up for himself and telling him how what he needs without telling me what to do. That's the pure, real deal. It doesn't get any purer than that. What an incredible thing you did. What an incredible thing you did. And my kids, they grew up in this sick, awful, nutty home. And my my wife, you know, she'd call up her Alan sponsor, my Ruby, who I, you know, I didn't need my wife to be an Alan. I didn't need her to work a program, but I sure I'm grateful that she did. It's such a pleasure living with someone who's got a big God in their life and is, you know, knows how to mirror some of God's love. I'm so lucky. Just flat out lucky. And she'd call up Ruby and say, well, you don't know what he's doing now. And Ruby would say, oh, they're all jerks. Come on over. <laughs> she'd never fight with her. Never. I'd say, oh, they're jerks. Did you? Come on over. We got a new girl. I'll teach you how to cook. She told her how to put on makeup. She told her how to dress. We were nuts. And she just loved him, you know? And I'm going to, forgive me, I'm going to use a, a little off-color language, but she'd say to the boys, boys, if you say thank you, you get more shit. <laughs> and the kids, and they've always said thank you ever since. Yeah, they have good manners. Her husband 
even know it. We pulled my kids aside. We were just in the program. Her husband Milton, and she gets and excuse my life, Milton said, Boys, your parents don't know shit. <laughs> and my kids went, Oh, thank God! We knew it! We had a hunch, but it's confirmed now! Oh my God, what a relief! Someone else knows! <laughs> and they love Ruby and Milton. They just love them to pieces, you know. Um, my son Micah gave Alcoholics Anonymous what for me is really one of the greatest compliments I've ever heard in my life. It, this happened recently. He's 19 now. He's up in college. He's a communist. Uh, <laughs> when he announced that he was a communist a couple of years ago, I said, Mike, come here. Uh, Micah, have you called the home office? Because I think there's just a tape now. There's not, it's, not, it's not working out, babe. You're really getting on the bus late here. Uh, <laughs> Before we went off to college, he was babysitting for a couple on the program, and, and uh, this guy uh, in the couple said to him, uh, what do you think of hearing your dad talking AA? And my, my big, beautiful boy said to him, he said, I don't know about that stuff, and to tell you the truth, I really don't care much about it. He said, all I can tell you is since I'm a very little boy, the men and women of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon have taken very, very good care of me, and never once has any of them demanded that I believe what they believe. What a remarkable show. That's for you. That's for you. I mean, what an incredible thing to be able to say of a group of people. And that's based on 12 years and 9 months of his experience in the program, of being exposed to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon. That's not based on something he heard. That's based on his personal experience. Now, that's not promotion. That's not evangelism. That's not bullying. That's not blackmail. That's what Dr. Bob said this whole thing boils down to. If you boil these 12 steps down, it boils down to love and service. And what a gorgeous expression my son made of that. What a beautiful, beautiful expression. If you're new here, I want to welcome you to AA, and I want to suggest that you're in a very dangerous situation. I think you're in a lot of trouble. Uh, basically, we're saying to you, uh, please don't drink. We, we know that you don't have what is necessary to not drink, but please don't drink till you get it. Please use our God till you find one. It's this terrible, gray, wooden period of time. What we're asking you to do is the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life, which is stand and take the whooping. Stand and open mail. Open mail. Don't do it in your first week. Don't open that mail. You might not want to open the mail in the first month. <laughs> but uh, we're asking you to do something really, really hard, and I think you're in a dangerous situation, you know. And I, I wish the best for you. I really do. I, uh, uh, some years ago, was talking to a guy at a meeting. I met him at a meeting. And uh, I went home. And he called me. And he talked to me for an hour. And uh, 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 I said, uh-huh, four times. So he'd know I wasn't dead. And uh, he told me that <laughs> he had been stalking several women. And he had a restraining order out against him. But he's 11 days sober now. And it's all different. <laughs> and uh, at, the end <laughs> at the end of the hour, he said to me, I feel so alone. And I said, what are you talking about? I hardly even know you. I just listened to you for an hour without interrupting, and you feel alone? He said, I mean, I, I don't have a woman. And I said to him, what, what exactly would you be bringing to a relationship right now 
besides stalking skills. <laughs> People two weeks in remission from leukemia are not having dating problems. Alcoholics are because our problem mainly rests in our mind. It's the good news and the bad news. There's, again, there's no other book about recovery from fatal illness that contains the, the, the sentence, we absolutely insist on enjoying life. Come join us in the firing line of life. Help us pack main, in, things into mainstream of life. Come join us on the broad highway. The best years lie ahead. There's no book about cholera that says these things. But because our problem mainly rests in our mind, because we have a disease where the recovery actually leaves the patient in better condition than they were in before they caught the disease, we have that. What a drag. Now, if you're new, we, we're, we're, we've gone from 2 to 2 million with no promotion since 1935. We're 2 million. We're in 150 countries, over 98,000 groups, but I'm sure this isn't going to work for you. <laughs> you can make a deal with God today, a God that you don't understand or don't even want to know. You can make it today if you're new, and you can say a little prayer. You can say a lot of little prayers. The one that I have found to be tremendously helpful is, I will, pop, I will accept the craving if you remove this obsession. Please, I'll stop treating the craving with alcohol. Every time a craving comes up, I smother it with a drink and I treat it. I'll stop treating it with a drink. And, I, because, and every craving has a beginning, a middle, and an end. You can stand and you can take the whoop it and you can feel it break over you like a wave. I'll accept the craving. Please remove the obsession. But here's the deal. You won't have to accept the craving alone. Find some good people in Alcoholics Anonymous. Find some people who don't ask how you are as they're walking away from you. Find some people who really want to know and call them and go to a meeting and take the licking and keep on ticking and just hang in there. Because we, we do have, it says in step 10, the alcohol problem will be removed. You know the correct self, use of self-will and sanity will have been restored. Not bad. I'll take that. You know. Uh, one day I was uh, talking to a newcomer on the phone and my wife uh, was walking through the room and she just hears me say on the phone, let's say the aliens are coming. <laughs> right. She stops dead. She ain't going to miss this for a second. <laughs> I said... I'm not telling you the aliens aren't coming. That's an outside interest. I'm not telling you that. What I am asking you is, why are they coming for you? Why have they traversed the universe for your sorry ass? You're 11 days sober. You have no life. Why have they come all this way for you? And when they land here, aren't they going to call the cops or something? Why are they coming for you? Plus, he's sleeping with a Bible on his chest to ward them off. The aliens are going to cross the galaxy, walk into his room and go, Oh, the Bible, let's go home. <laughs> if the aliens are coming for you, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. Welcome home. Thanks for having me down for it.